back to yet another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Brittany. We're joined today by Damon Effingham, Legal and Policy Director at Common Cause Maryland. In his capacity as Legal and Policy Director for the organization, Damon does work coordinating and leading legislative campaigns on issues related to money and politics, voting rights, transparency, and government ethics. Prior to his time with Common Cause Maryland, Damon worked with U.S. Representative John Sarbanes on the bipartisan Government by the People Act campaign and consulted for companies looking to operate in Maryland's medical marijuana space. While Maryland certainly does a better job than many states when it comes to voting rights, a number of issues still remain. We're glad to have Damon on the podcast today to tell us more about the issues that Common Cause is working to address in order to protect the rights of Marylanders. So thank you so much for joining us, Damon. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, so to get us started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Common Cause, both the work that you do here in Maryland and nationally? Sure. So I'm the acting director of Common Cause Maryland. Um, In Maryland, we work on the same things that we do nationally, but we obviously have a focus on state politics. So our organization has been around since the early 70s. We work on good government issues, so ethical government. We work on uh, campaign finance reform. We work on gerrymandering and redistricting reform. And we work on voting rights and making sure that every person in America, every Marylander is my task, every person in Maryland uh, who's eligible has the ability to have their voice heard on election day. Perfect. And um, you actually made a major announcement in early December that you are renewing the fight for Election Day voter registration and automatic voter registration. And for listeners who don't live and breathe election reform, what is Election Day registration and how is it going to make a difference for Marylanders? Sure. So I I started a Common Cause in 2016, and the very first thing that we started working on or that I started working on when I got here uh, was making sure that everyone has access to the ballot in Maryland. So Election Day registration is part of that effort, and so it's pretty simple. Basically, every Marylander should be able to have their voice heard on Election Day if they're eligible to vote. Um, And so Election Day registration is a part of that process. So in Maryland, we have an early voting period, and during that time, you can go in and vote uh, before Election Day. Uh, But also, as part of that, you can go in and register so you can vote at the same time. So if you haven't registered to vote, before the kind of 20-day, 21-day cutoff, you can still go in and have your voice heard. But because of the way the Maryland Constitution works, you can't do that on Election Day. And we just don't think that that really makes sense for Marylanders. Uh, I think a lot of people are confused by that and show up at the polls on Election Day and and don't realize they can't access that same program that exists during uh, during the early voting period. Um, so we're working to change that, uh, especially, it is especially important to us because in 2016, 20,000 Marylanders uh, used the early voting uh, same-day registration program to either update their registration or to register to vote for the very first time. There's obviously a much larger population on Election Day than on any one early voting day, so it's important that this program's there for them as well. Um, And so this obviously sounds like a really important policy to have in place. Um, So how many other states have it, and what's been the experience with this policy in other states? Sure. So uh, 16 other states or jurisdictions have it. So that's 15 states, and then the District of Columbia all have Election Day registration. These are red states. These are blue states. uh, And states have had these programs going back to the early 70s. They're about as old as Common Cause Maryland is. Um, So those states, on average, have about... 10 to 11 percent higher uh, turnout and participation in their elections than non-election day registration states have. So it's, it's a huge and important way uh, for, for people to be able to have their voices heard. 
Uh, it has a huge impact on participation. And again, since it's existed since the 70s, there are very few barriers that, that uh, to implementing it that other states haven't already kind of crossed over. So all of the kinks are worked out in that policy, and we should follow in their footsteps. Well, and you actually already alluded to um, ways that Marylanders can get involved with early voting. And right now, Marylanders can actually register to vote at early voting centers. Mm -hmm. So is it really that much harder to allow them to register to vote at their Election Day polling place? How is this policy um, really going to change things for Marylanders? Well, like I said earlier, on Election Day, there's a higher population of voters than there is on any single uh, same day or I'm sorry, early voting period day. So it's important because we want to catch and allow everyone who comes to vote on Election Day uh, to, to participate in this program. The main difference is that early voting, uh, during the early voting period, there are specific centers. There aren't as many precincts. So Election Day registration is, is incredibly important because it would spread it to all of those precincts and give that access to even more Marylanders. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and what about automatic voter registration? Can you explain that concept a little more? Sure. So automatic voter registration is a little bit more complicated than Election Day registration, which is all in the name. Uh, so the way that automatic voter registration works is um, Marylanders every day interact with a variety of Maryland agencies, from the MVA to uh, the healthcare exchange to local social service agencies. All of those agencies that Marylanders interact with already have the information necessary to register someone to vote. But uh, because of the way we've always done things, they require people to go through extra steps in order to register to vote, even though you've already input that information. Um, so when you go to the MVA, you, you uh, apply for a driver's license or you update your, your address, you have to put in a bunch of information, and then you have to go to another step to put in the exact same information for that voter registration. So the way automatic voter registration works is it recognizes that you've already taken this step and says you have given us the information necessary to register to vote, and we're going to register you to vote unless you opt out. And it's a really small change from the way things currently work in that uh, it's, a, it's an opt-in. Uh, but we found in other states and, uh, that it vastly increases the amount of people who register, which then increases the amount of people who participate. Um, so automatic voter registration is also not an entirely new program, also exists in other states. There are 10 other jurisdictions that have it, all states, uh, and the District of Columbia. And these are red and blue states. Uh, Georgia has it. Alaskan voters voted to have this program. Uh, in, in Illinois, they just recently passed their own version of it, and uh, with bipartisan, complete unanimous support in their legislature. Um, so both of these policies are in red and blue states. Both of these policies have bipartisan support. So we're hoping as well that when we go into this session that there's not a, uh, a partisan fight over this. Everybody sees the utility. And yes, you did mention bipartisan support, but at the same time, your opponent would argue that this opens the door for voter fraud. Would you say that's a legitimate argument? Not at all. So we'll take that argument uh, for each policy. So Election Day registration, this doesn't open up any di anything different than what Maryland already has in the early voting period, the same day registration in that period. This is the exact same program, uh, and it's been working successfully in Maryland. Again, 20,000 Marylanders use this program, and we have no significant voter fraud here. Um, the, the same goes with automatic voter registration. Uh, because both policies still require the same amount of identification that have, have worked in Maryland for decades. Um, and automatic voter registration can actually decrease some of the problems that uh, more so conservatives have had with voting uh, systems in the country. Uh, right now, unfortunately, there's a group called Judicial Watch that is suing Maryland 
saying that we aren't throwing people off the rolls fast enough, basically. And at the heart of their, their argument is that if we don't clean the rolls uh, whenever people don't vote in a, a one election cycle, somehow someone might steal their identity and vote for them. Uh, there's a lot of coordination involved there, and we haven't actually seen evidence of it here in Maryland. But if one accepts those arguments and thinks they're really important, automatic voter registration is a great way to kind of combat that issue because when Marylanders move and get their new ID, let's say they move from Montgomery County to where I'm from, Talbot County, when they go and get their new driver's license, their, their voter registration is automatically going to be updated, getting rid of their old registration, and keeping rolls cleaner uh, and easier for Marylanders. So it sounds like Maryland clearly has a lot of work to do on expanding voting rights, but it has to be exciting for you working in a place where you can play offense on the issue instead of defense. So throughout 2016, we heard about states cutting back on early voting and requiring voters to show ID at the polls. So can you tell our, our listeners a little bit more about how policies like those negatively impact voters? Well, the first thing that we should note about policies like those is that they're trying to address problems that don't exist. So the vast majority of studies from Republican administrations, from Democratic administrations, from reputable uh, universities, from media outlets, none of them find a significant amount of voter fraud that would be impacted by these voter ID requirements. Uh, the other thing, though, is that we constantly see when these policies are implemented, tens of thousands of people, typically people of color, typically uh, younger voters, and typically uh, more impoverished voters, uh, are disenfranchised to, to find one or two cases that may or may not be there. So kind of moving into a, a different department, Common Cause is actually a leading advocate for cleaning up our campaign finance system, and you actually did some innovative research last year that helped to frame the debate over bail reform in Maryland. So can you tell us what you found? Sure. Well, every year Common Cause takes the various reports that come out of our, our, our Board of Elections and out of our State Board of Ethics. Uh, and tries to package them in ways that, that kind of make sense and, and describe the problems that we see in Maryland. Um, so last year we kind of took a different tack and focused that on the bail industry and its influence here. Now Common Cause doesn't really have a position on bail reform, uh, but it's certainly something that I think that uh, our executive director at the time and myself were both sympathetic to. Uh, so we wanted to help use that as a way to describe one of the big money in politics problems here in Maryland. So a lot of Marylanders don't know uh, kind of the process a bill goes through in our General Assembly. Uh, but one of the really key things that people need to realize is that the committee chairs for each committee that sees a variety of bills every year, they have a huge amount of power to let bills forward. Uh, they can have one hearing on a bill and then basically what's called uh, put it in the drawer uh, so it's not, it doesn't see the light, again, light of day again for the rest of the session. And this is an incredible amount of power. And so we wanted to highlight what had been happening with some of these bail reform bills uh, in that there was a good deal of support in the advocate community for reform uh, and bills on those issues just kept kind of dying in committee and not going anywhere. Maryland, we found, was one of the top three states for the bail industry money donating to our candidates. Uh, and what we also found is that the, the chairs of the committees that are relevant to the issues of bail reform were two of the top five uh, in terms of recipients of bail money in the country. Uh, and so while we don't want to say that that necessarily means that they do everything that the bail industry wants, it does show that there's a huge amount of influence that this industry has and has really put on the pressure points of our, of our democratic system in Maryland to kind of sway the results to them. 
And so we wanted to make sure and highlight that through our report last year. Absolutely. And um, also as a part of your advocacy for clean campaigns, a couple of local jurisdictions are experimenting with public campaign financing in this upcoming election. So what have we seen so far and what do you hope to see as the election unfolds? Sure. So we've been really excited that uh, after the General Assembly uh, created a, an ability for counties to have small dollar public funding programs. And basically what that means is a candidate opts into this program and agrees to take only money from individuals and only small dollar donations, depending on the jurisdiction, below $150 or below $250. So we've been really excited that that passed in 2013 and immediately Montgomery County kind of leapt on it and started creating their own program, which will be going into effect this election cycle. Uh, various, nearly 30 candidates, I think, have, have announced their intention to be a part of it. Um, and I think close to 10 have uh, qualified for it now. So what that means is that we're going to have candidates who are running on the, the power of their communities as opposed to the, 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 the power of the, the kindness of strange billionaires or uh, LLCs as Maryland allows LLC donations, unfortunately. Um, so these are going to be people that are going to their neighborhoods, knocking on doors, getting small dollar donations and being able to be competitive against wealthy interests. Howard County also passed uh, by popular vote uh, a similar program in 2016. Uh, which they'll have going into effect in 2020. And Prince George's is uh, currently working on a, 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 a similar program that we hope is going to be introduced in January. In, in addition to your work on campaign finance reform, Common Cause is also a leading advocate when it comes to redistricting reform. And I think most Marylanders are aware that they live in one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. Um, and Common Cause Maryland has been an outspoken critic of the map and a voice for change. Uh, it appears, though, that there may be a shot at national reform thanks to a case in front of the Supreme Court. So can you tell us a little bit more about that case and when we might hear the court's decision? Sure. So uh, this, the case in front of the Supreme Court is actually one of three, possibly four cases that are dealing with this issue that are kind of percolating. Two of those cases are coming out of Maryland, actually, uh, but they are currently kind of waiting behind this larger case from Wisconsin. Um, so basically, in gerrymandering jurisprudence, uh, in the past, the court has, has, has ruled that it's unconstitutional to create lines that negatively impact uh, people of color. Uh, so racial gerrymandering is a no-go under the Constitution, but unfortunately political gerrymandering is still allowed. Uh, and what we've seen over the past 20 years really uh, is political actors using technology to just turn gerrymandering into hyperdrive. Uh, so just targeting down to the one house on one street, carving out perfect jurisdictions, carving out perfect jurisdictions for politicians who already live in an area, uh, and it's just become too much. We want to see voters choosing their elected officials as opposed to elected officials choosing their voters. So we're really excited that the Supreme Court is currently seeing a case out of Wisconsin uh, where there's a unique argument being made about how to show when uh, partisan gerrymandering kind of has gone too far. In the past, it's been hard for the Supreme Court uh, to kind of say when they know that partisan gerrymandering has gone too far. But we are really hopeful that this case out of Wisconsin is going to pr provide a new metric and formula for the Supreme Court and for legislatures to see very easily when this is happening. So we're hopeful that we'll see a, a, a result from this case uh, by the beginning of 2018, although it's possible that we would have to wait until about June of next year uh, to hear an answer from the court. 
And speaking specifically to national policy concerning issues that Common Cause deals with, um, the state of Maryland actually has a special tie when it comes to Chris Kobach's voting commission. Mm -hmm. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? All right. So going back to, to voting rights, yeah. So for all the talk we talked about expanding voting rights in Maryland, Maryland is, is pretty good on a variety of things. We've got a good state board that it cares about making sure that more people can vote, more people have access. But unfortunately, at the national level, that's not the same thing. Uh, President Trump won uh, the presidency and immediately was making claims that there were two to three million illegal voters uh, and created a quote-unquote voter integrity uh, commission uh, headed by the Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach. Uh, for people who don't know about Chris Kobach, uh, the, the federal courts know him very well, and what they know him for is for uh, dramatically decreasing the ability of, of Americans to vote. In his own jurisdiction of Kansas, he's, uh, the courts have noted that he has uh, vastly decreased the ability of Kansans to exercise their ability to vote through uh, a variety of programs he's instituted since being there. Um, now, now he wants to spread those, those programs throughout the rest of the country and disenfranchise millions of people across the country. Um, so he's put together this panel, which uh, features people from across the country and many Marylanders don't know, actually featured a Hogan appointee, uh, Governor Hogan appointee from the, our Secretary of State's office, Deputy Secretary of State uh, Louis Burunda. Now, in many other states, the Secretary of State has a lot to do with, uh, with elections. In many other states, the Secretary of State is basically performs the duties that, that our Board of Elections does. But again, in Maryland, the Secretary of State has very little to do uh, with voting. So we kind of raised our eyebrows when we saw that he had joined the commission. We put a uh, Public Information Act request in to see what kind of led up to this. And what we saw was kind of troubling. A, the Secretary of State uh, and uh, the deputy spend a lot of time sharing articles from a group called the ACRU. They're kind of the bizarro version of the ACLU that wants to reduce the ability of Americans to, to, to participate in elections. Um, so there was, a, there was already an interest in that office, even though they don't deal with these issues. Uh, and then we saw uh, Secretary Burunda reaching out, trying to put himself onto this commission. Uh, and the Hogan administration was unfortunately uh, pretty enthusiastic about him finally joining. Uh, now, we're glad that after the Huffington Post revealed that uh, Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State Burunda doesn't have any experience in elections, uh, that after that was revealed, he thankfully resigned. Uh, unfortunately, we still have to deal with the fact that this commission exists, and we need to work on ways to protect Marylanders, protect Maryland voters uh, from the misguided efforts of the Kobach Commission which brings us full circle to AVR and EDR, uh, which are two policies that are, are designed specifically to deal with, with the issues coming from the, the um, Kobach Commission, in that the Kobach Commission is trying to throw people off the rolls, but we can create programs that make it easy for eligible Marylanders uh, to vote no matter what happens um, in, from this kind of nightmare commission. We're certainly glad that groups like Common Cause are looking out for voting rights, especially in the face of the Trump presidency and the Kobach Commission. Um, but before we close, I actually hear there is a transition happening at Common Cause Maryland. Uh, your executive director is leaving to lead advocates for children and youth, and you're stepping into the executive director role on an interim basis. Congratulations. Yay! <laughs> so are you looking forward to your new responsibilities? Um, I am... Dreading it in a way, just because uh, our current executive director, Jennifer Bevan Dangle, um, it's, it's huge, huge shoes to fill. She's been in this role for five years, and the 
it would take me far too long to list off the amazing reforms that she's been involved with since she's been here. We talked about those public funding programs. That's Jennifer Bevan Dangle leading the way on in Montgomery County and Howard County um, and starting to plant the seeds in Prince George's with us. Uh, we talk about gerrymandering reform. She has done so much to highlight that in this state. And we talk about you know transparency. There's not a, a single issue of good governance that she hasn't had a real impact on. So I am terrified because those are such huge uh, shoes to fill. But I'm happy because these are issues that I care about. This is why I came here, is to, is to be an advocate for voting rights in Maryland, for fair governance for everybody. Um, so I'm excited to kind of take the reins, and I, I hope uh, that I can do Jennifer proud. And as we've discussed, it's an incredibly important time for the work that you all are doing, and we definitely appreciate it. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for coming. You can join us again in two weeks for another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy podcast. But in the meantime, you can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and on our website at OurMaryland.us.